0: So in 1 Corinthians, we're, we're in that section uh, where Paul is, is reminding the church of a couple of things. He's reminding them the importance that they focus on God, that true wisdom comes from God and only God. But the church is splitting apart. They're, they're fracturing because they're taking up sides. And then people have all sorts of guesses about what's going on. And you can read a dozen books and get kind of a dozen different variances. But fundamentally, some in the church think they are better Christians than others. That's what it boils down to. And in the process, they think that they can live their Christian life in a different way. And, and, and so there's criticism and there's doing certain things that just split the church apart. And, and then also, some of them are taking sides as to who they follow. Some follow, you know, Paul started the church, but Apollos came in. Apollos, the great preacher, and they side with him. Some go to Peter, some say we just do Christ. But in all of that, Paul comes under a lot of criticism. In 2 Corinthians, if you read 2 Corinthians at some point down the line, you'll really see that. So Paul is doing what only Paul can do. He is, he is using a variety of techniques and arguments to help them see truth and to draw them into the understanding that they're ultimately followers of Christ. And oh, by the way, they are followers of Christ, and, and they should be unified, and he's fine with them, loving Apollos and loving Peter, but he's still an apostle, and he actually founded the church, and everything he's taught them is correct, and they still need to listen to him kind of along the way. And so we kind of left off with him talking about last week foundations and building and and, you know, be attested by fire. And in verse 16, we left off here, really important part. And this is easy to confuse. He said, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? First Corinthians 3, 16. So who is he talking to when he says you are a temple? Now, he is talking to the church collectively. I know there are other places where we, our body is a temple and I got that. This is not connected with that. There are a couple of different words for temple. One word for temple speaks of the whole temple precinct. It'd be, it'd be like we talk about the whole church grounds. It's come on up to the church. Now, putting aside that church means people, if we say come on up to the church, we mean the whole thing. But this particular building, the, I mean, this particular room is our worship center. It is, it is, and so some people might say, I'm going to go to church now. Sometimes we'll say, hey, y'all, get out of the commons and come to church. And, and that means to come in here. We use the same word, but the two different meanings. In the temple, there was the sanctuary. The word used for temple here is that word for idea of sanctuary. It's the place where they worship. In other words, you people, in many ways, Paul was saying, you, you were God's dwells." That sanctuary represented the place where they met God. He's saying God is with you. And you, you, you're the church, and so he says, you're the temple. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, the Holy Spirit dwells within me, but he dwells with all of us. Oftentimes, when, when I preach and I pray and in my invitation, I'll say in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I believe not only is the Holy Spirit in me and in those of you who are followers, but he is here as all of us collectively. Not just in us, but among us. And so I pray by that power that the Holy Spirit would work in the lives of people and touch their lives. So you have the Spirit. He says, and this this is so key in verse 17. And and by the way, this is so important today. Because what I'm about to share with you not only applies to coming into a church and, and, and kind of splitting it apart but it applies to coming to a church as a pastor and leading the church astray doctrinally or leading the church astray in the understanding of Scripture and God. He says in verse 17, "Any, if, if any man, and he's not saying it happens, but it could, destroys the temple of God, that is you, the church. I'll listen, to that. God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. God's temple is holy. Now, now obviously with Christianity, and we understand that temple changed and all that. But the point is, because God is there, so it makes it holy. It's not holy for any reason. God is there, and God is with you. So if you destroy the church, God will destroy you. The word destroy, there's some debate. Does that mean they're destroyed eternally? They're lost? Some, some scholars think that. Some say, well, it could it could mean it's just... It could simply be destroyed in connection to the damage they have done so that if they're a follower of Christ, maybe their reputation, maybe their ministry is destroyed, something like that. I'm not exactly sure. The word for destruction tends to have the idea of, you know, just being wiped out. But in the argument... Paul could be alluding to the fact that there are still some who are believers that do so much damage to the church. And I've known pastors and others who have really hurt the church and have, you know, their ministry's been shot, their reputation's been shot, and no one trusts them anymore, but they're still believers. The key to all this simply is you don't want to be the person who causes harm or conflict to a group of people who function as a local church. My, I jokingly say that my greatest, not joking but I say my greatest fear is that I mess this up. My greatest fear always as a pastor, it has been, is that I do something to damage the church I serve. That is my fear. When I was in Lareda, nine wonderful years, and I spent 20 years in ministry at that point. But a situation arose in the church, and, and, and I didn't do anything wrong or immoral or unethical, but, but I realized I, I, my pride had got in the way. And I understood I, that, that church had split before I got there. I you know, brought it back into my ministry. My daughter was about to enter high school. I needed to worry about her. The high schools there were really in bad shape. I needed to get her education. So I stepped away. And I stepped away, and I told them, I don't see a way for me to make a decision If I stay, that won't hurt the church. But if I walk away, y'all can be okay, and they were okay. They called a guy, came in. They finished the relocation. Everything was fine. And I I did that, and it was painful for me to spend that brief period of time without a church. And I got one. You know, I did a lot of I did a lot of ministry stuff, preached a lot of places, did interim work, and all that. But, it, but I understood the danger was that I was going to hurt that church. And I never wanted to hurt that church. And the idea of facing God, knowing that my arrogance and my pride got in the way, and I would have stayed thinking I could fix something I couldn't fix. They won't do that. Now, I, I tell you that because too often, all of us, think we're right, do we not? Do you ever just think, you know, I'm wrong most of the time? I never think I'm wrong most of the time. Never think I'm wrong, ever. Sometimes you just haven't caught up to me, that's all. But our arrogance and our pride and our selfishness, it's not just on the pastor, it's on people's part, can hurt a church. One of my primary responsibilities as your pastor is to protect you and keep you from being hurt by outside forces or internal forces. Sometimes act on that rather quickly and decisively because I have to to protect the church. And so I say that to you because we need to always understand you don't want to be that person who hurts the local church. You you don't want to be that person under any circumstances. Paul's warning you. Don't be that guy or gal. that no man, verse 18 says this deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so he may become wise. That old argument about wisdom. Remember, they all thought, some of them thought they were really wise. Paul comes back to that. He said, You're being, you who think you are wise, you who think you're smart, you're clever, you're just deceiving yourselves. You who think you are super Christians that have all the inside knowledge and, and you know things and you're just the cut above everybody else. You're being deceptive. Here's what you need to do, he says. You need to become foolish, and then you'll become wise. Foolish to the ways of the world. In other words, true wisdom is not found in the way of the world. True wisdom is found in God. Better to be thought a fool by the world, but wise in the sight of the Lord. If you seek earthly wisdom, if you utilize earthly wisdom, you're foolish. So those pastors, those churches who think that by adopting the philosophy, the orientations, the mindset of the culture as a way to reach the culture, thinking they're wise by doing that, are fools. And inevitably, those churches and denominations die. Look around. They're everywhere. You cannot be wise by the way of the world. It is better for the world to think we're fools, simpletons, we were stuck in a rut in, 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 in a wrong way of thinking. And yet people will be attracted to that. People will flock to that. because what people want is not our wisdom. They want faith in Jesus. They want our authenticity. They want our love. I'd rather be loved by a fool. Than despised by a wise man. I just made that up. Somebody write that. You got that recorded? Y'all write that down, Troy. Put that on the website. That was just good. That was wise. And then a the foolish thing about that—just wisdom. Turned fifty and I got wise. That was foolish. I turned. I got wise 10 years ago, Mike. I didn't say I just happened. I got wise 10 years ago. Speaking of half-wise there, come on. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world, notice, is foolishness before God. We've already seen this earlier. He's repeating, it is written, quoting Job, and then he's quoting uh, Psalm 94. He is the one who catches the wise and the craftiness. Isn't that great about Job? He catches those who think they're wise. He traps them like someone getting caught in their own snare. And again, the Lord knows the reasons of the wise. They are useless. Oh, man, you just can't outwise God. So then, let no one boast in men. He says, all things belong to you. What he's saying is this. And like, all things belong to you means all of us are serving you. Our task is to serve you. So why, why are you boasting? Why are you saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paulos? We're not collecting followers, we're serving you. So, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life or, or, or death or things present or things to come, these belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So, here is God who has sent Christ I realize Christ and God are, are you know, equal in terms of eternal aspects. But when Christ became human, he, 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 took, he took on the nature of man, emptied himself of the righteous privileges of deity. And so in a human condition, he is subordinate to God. He belongs to God. We belong to Christ. We give our life to Christ. And Paul says, we belong to you. So <laughs> when, you, when you take the understanding that Jesus tells us in John 13, that you serve one another, and then he says you love one another, We are to love and serve. We belong to each other. I, as the pastor of the church, I don't have a following. My task is not for you to follow me. My task is to serve you. I serve you as pastor. I serve you by preaching. And yes, I serve you by leading. But in leading, I am still serving you. One of the great metaphors, in Scripture, of a pastor is the shepherd. David, the Lord is my shepherd. God is the shepherd. What do shepherds do? They are there for the best interest of the sheep. They protect the sheep from the wolves and other dangers. They lead the sheep to pasture and water, and then to bed. They always serve the sheep, even and leading. I am not your authority. I am not. The one who's in charge of you, I am the one who serves you, and you serve me, and we serve each other. And churches that are bickering and fighting are not serving, they're trying to control. I cannot tell you the number of times I've had people try to leverage me personally, or leverage me in a business meeting, or leverage someone else. They try to pull some worldly stunt thinking that's cute. And when the church is where God wants it to be, it never works because the people reject that. You never want the worldly ways to lead or guide your church. You want the Holy Spirit using people who serve you. Always. So Apollos reminded them of the danger of these divisions. And then chapter 4, I'm going to go through verse 7 of the and he's really talking now about him and Apollos. And Paul loved Apollos. I mean, Paul, Paul thought the world of Apollos. You just read throughout the passages then with Apollos. Apollos was this gifted speaker, but he, he, he was eloquent, but he had a lot to learn. In fact, Priscilla and Aquila had to take him under their wing and teach him. Paul loved Apollos. He said, let a man regard us, think about us in this manner. He says two things, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are that which God reveals. So he says two things, as servants and stewards. The word servant kind of has the idea of one who comes alongside as an Uh, attache. If if you were in the military, a a high-ranking officer might have an aide. A surgeon might have someone assist him in surgery. Uh, A lawyer might have a paralegal. Someone to come alongside. We're servants. And and then the word steward comes from the idea of a household manager. Uh, Wealthy people might uh, take their slaves and and, and put them in high regard and have them oversee the house. Joseph did that in Potiphar. Remember, Joseph was Potiphar's slave, but he ran Potiphar's house. He said, here's what we are. Look at us this way. We're servants of Christ. We come along. We serve in Christ. And then we're household stewards of His mystery. So, serving Christ, but stewards and servants of the church also. That's so what we did. He said, "In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or, or faithful. Faithful, to be faithful. Now, we put a lot of emphasis on faithful, but faithful does not mean it's okay to fail. Okay." I've heard people, I know people who didn't do a very good job say, yeah, but they're faithful. Uh, Well, okay, but being faithfully bad isn't the solution. I've seen this, and I know Mike has seen this so much, the people who sing. God bless them. Some of them just love to sing, but not very good. And I've told you this before, but they love Jesus and they're faithful. You love Jesus. Jesus don't love to hear you sing. I'll tell you right now. Being faithful don't mean it's okay for you to sing solo. It may not be okay for you to sing at all. The best place for you to sing may be in another church. No, the best place for you to sing is just to yourself. God knows your heart. He's fine with that. I've known people who've taught Sunday school classes. They're faithful. but, But they're not very good at it. And so the two people that show up are faithful also. And I'm not belittling. I'm just saying every person has a place where they can serve. Every one of you has a gift set, a skill set by God. Right where you can serve and you'd be fantastic. There are jobs to help you get there. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's. Parking lot, you guys are the best. We love you guys. I'm sorry, when you caught a lot of flack over that toilet paper comment. Y'all weren't here in the second service. I'm trying to build up the parking lot, guys. And I look over, and this GT with a roll of toilet paper and saying, Why are the parking lot guys bringing toilet paper to church? And then he told me his wife made him do it. So he totally blamed you, But you know, everybody, every one of us, and we want to be faithful there, we want to do a good job. I want to be faithful when I preach. Part of being faithful means I spend a lot of time studying. Part of faithful means I spend a lot of time preparing. Part of being faithful means I spend a lot of time critiquing and being critiqued. Part of faithfulness is striving for excellence. And faithfulness always involves serving. Do you don't want to know why I want to do the absolute best, most excellent job I can in whatever I do, it's because I want to honor God, and I want to serve you. And if I halfway it, and I don't put in the full effort, I'm doing you a disservice. I'm cheating you and robbing you. And I'm not being a faithful servant. And I'm causing harm in the church. We should always strive to give the very best we have to God in whatever we do. That's so why we talk about excellence a lot. It's not because we're trying to better everybody else. It's because serving one another and serving God is a privilege. And the ability, the opportunity to give the very best is a faithful steward. He says, but to me, now remember, they were critical of Paul somewhere. It is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. In other words, you examining me, eh, I mean nothing. It is a very small thing that I will be examined by you or by any human court. He says, in fact, I don't even examine myself. He goes, I know I'm being criticized. He It's not that it's bothering me. The danger is what it's hurting the church, by the way. I wish I could say when people critical me, it doesn't bother me. Depends on who it is. For I am conscious, he says, of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So in essence, what he's saying in a way that only Paul can, so ultimately it's ultimately up to God to judge what I do. I, I leave it in God's hand. It's, it's a good thing for us. One of the things I found in life, when all is said and done, sometimes we seem to say, God, I'll just leave it in your hands. A lot of times when I'm praying, looking for wisdom, or when I'm praying and I know that I'm struggling, or I'm not doing something very well, and I'm worried about how I'm doing, I'll say, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to trust you with the rest. And I'll let you work it out. And when you've worked it out, you just kind of let me know. And knowing that God is evaluating me is scary, but knowing that God is evaluating me helps because God is a very, very good evaluator. And he'll let me know when I need correcting. I don't always like it when he does that. I don't always like the way he does it. And I'm not totally sure I always agree with him. <laughs> but he's always right. He said, I, so he said, "Paul, saying, I, I know some of you are critical. It's okay. you got no right to be, by the way. He'll deal, he'll deal with all of that. He says, but it's not affecting me. God's the one who judges. Therefore, verse 5, always know what the therefores are the there Standard rule of preaching. Know what the therefore is the Therefore, It's a cliche, it's a good one. Going back to what he has said, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Don't quit judging everybody. But wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. No one knows what's in our heart. God does. You can't judge someone's heart. And each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, he's saying, in essence, you've got to quit judging one another. Quit doing motives. You, do you know people in a church who have the gift of criticism? You ever met someone who has that gift? It's not a real spiritual gift. They just perfect that art. <laughs> Listen, if you want to say, hey, man, you, that, that, David really messed that sermon up. He got some stuff wrong. He stuttered, stumbled, whatever. It's fine. It's never never judge the heart of the motives. God does that. Too often, you know what we do? I hear it all the time. We think we know the reasoning and the motives behind what people do what they do. Oh, they're just jealous. Oh, they're bitter. Oh, they're this or that way. And, and here's what we do. We evaluate their soul and their character. It's probably not our place to do that. I can evaluate the end results. Okay. Yeah, they did a very good job with that. Maybe they're not the best person to be working in Awana. Let's put them somewhere else. That's okay, but don't judge the reasoning. Don't judge the rationale. Well, They shouldn't be working in Iwana because, well, they just don't love kids. Well, that's not fair. That's not, we don't know they don't love kids. We, we, we have these games we play, thinking we know the motives of other people. Here's what I have found. Jesus says, through the way you judge people, will be judged to you. But what we also know is that you tend to, To think about people the way that's in your own heart. You evaluate people according to what's in here. And when you criticize the motives of people, it's because oftentimes your motives are wrong. When you show a lack of love to people, a lack of mercy, something wrong in your life. Paul said, hey man, don't, don't be judging me. This is what he says in this part. Now these things, brothers, and this is a, whenever you use the term brethren, especially in a situation like this, it's always a term of tenderness, and it means women, too. It's not being sexist. You don't have to change it. You can leave it as brethren. That's what he wrote. I have figuratively applied to myself and Paulos for your sakes. These things, I've done that. So that you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. He said, I wrote all these things. He said, I, I gave you these things. I don't want you to see what is written. There's some controversy about what is written means. For our purposes, maybe we'll just say what is written it tends to be written in Scripture, what you know from Scripture. So you'll quit being arrogant because ultimately, isn't it arrogant to think you're in a position to do what only God can do, which is judge and judge the motives of other people? That's a pretty lofty place to be. He says, so I, I, I give you these things. You're hurting the church. I want you to stop doing that. And you're you're pitting me against Apollos and Peter. Stop doing that. You're just being arrogant. He says, verse 7, he asks three questions. For who regards you as superior? (laughs) I I, I can say this from heart. (laughs) Oftentimes when someone's criticizing me or something, you probably do the same thing. Well, I'm like, well, what do they know? They're a moron, man. Why would I listen to them? Now, I'm being harsh. But when I'm being kind, I'm saying, why let their criticism get the best of me? They're in a, maybe they're in a tough place. Maybe life is difficult. Here's the other thing I don't want to do. If I let your criticism affect me, if you let my criticism affect you, I'm giving you ownership of my life. You don't own my life. Jesus owns my life. Now, I might want to listen to some good criticism. I get that. But I don't don't think of myself as superior to you. And I can promise you, I don't think of a single one of you as being superior to me either. It's just not the way I think. Well, it's the way any of us should think. I look at some of you, and I see your talent in some areas, and I don't have any of that talent or any of that ability or any of that compassion. But I also know that there are certain things about me that God has gifted me that that I do okay in. So I'm not going to let your opinion of me affect me. In part, because it's not fair to other people. If I let your view of me affect me, then I'm denying what God has given me, the gifts he's given me. And then I'm cheating other people out of what God expects of me. Who's superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Give me. what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What talent or gift did you have that God didn't give it to you? You know, my wife, she's a pretty good singer. She all right. She'd be the first to tell you. God gave her that gift. God gave her that talent. She's never had a singing lesson in her life. In fact, one of our first teachers said, don't ever take a singing lesson and it'll mess you up. Purely, truly God-given. Every one of us have abilities and gifts that set us apart. God gave it to us. You receive knowledge and teaching. Somebody taught you. Somebody give you. I, I was influenced by men in my life who affected my ministry. Some of the things that I do well, I do well because someone else taught me how to do that. I didn't think of it up on my own. I've never had an original thought in my life until that other day, a while ago that comment I made, that the mic right down. That's the first original thought I've ever had. Every idea that I've had that I brought to this church, I stole from someone who stole it from someone else. In the end... Why are we fighting? Why do we think we're superior to other believers? What right do we have to ever think that, when all that we are has come from God? I will see you Sunday when I start a new series called Impact Part Two. No, I was kidding. Called. (laughs) You didn't give enough money. I'm going eight more weeks. No, I'm just kidding. God, uh, the authentic Jesus. I'll see y'all